Our text this morning, we've already started reading. It's the account of the resurrection in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 24. That starts at verse 1, and we're going to read now from verse 1 all the way through verse 12. Words will be up on the screen behind me, but if you have a Bible, uh, then I always encourage people to turn to the passage that I'm reading, not just when I read it, but so that you can be looking at it as we continue to talk about it. Uh, If you'd like to do this and you don't have a Bible, then there are some blue Bibles that are scattered throughout the, the chair racks, and if you want to find Luke 24 and go right to it, it's on page 1125. And we've actually been building up to Luke 24 since January, if uh, you have been with us. That's when we started with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem as He began the, 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 the last week of His earthly life. And He entered with great fanfare and shouts of Hosanna and all these things. And at the end of that week, He ends on a cross. But, <laughs> but as we'll see today, the triumph that He prefigured in the coming into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday is magnified on Easter Sunday just a week later, and that's the triumph we celebrate today. So every Sunday, really, since January, we've been reading and studying about what the the Bible calls, the church has historically called Holy Week, but this morning we come to Luke 24. If you're able, let me ask you to stand as I read this passage, and when I'm done, I'm going to make the declaration that this is the Word of the Lord, and I'm going to invite you to respond by saying thanks be to God. Luke 24 starting again at verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping, in and looking, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Kids, have you ever seen a unicorn? Ever seen a unicorn? You know, there's like horse-like creatures that have a horn sticking out of their head. Most of the time in pictures or stickers and stuff, they're brightly colored like with, you know, flowers and stuff all over them, right? Ever seen one? Not a real one, probably. Maybe in a cartoon, but they're just a myth, right? Right? Not real, right? Well, back in 2012, believe it or not, breaking news came out of the Korean Central News Agency. This is the official news outlet for North Korea, saying that archaeologists from the History Institute of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea had confirmed that there had been found a lair, that's a you know, dwelling place where, a, where an animal would live, the, had found the lair of a unicorn, a real lair of a unicorn that had actually been ridden by an ancient Korean king. Apparently, it's located 200 meters from a well-known temple in Pyongyang City, and the archaeologists say that they found a rock that was outside of this, this lair, a thousand-year-old sign in front of the unicorn lair that said, you guessed it, 
unicorn lair. So everyone would know that that's where the unicorn lived. Now, it's crazy, right? And outside of North Korea, no one, <laughs> no one takes a claim like that seriously. But think about it for a minute. Unless you're a Christian, and even for some people who call themselves Christians, that's actually, in a similar way, how people kind of laugh at the claim of the resurrection of Jesus. It sounds kind of like the story of a unicorn lair to them. A cute myth that's basically just designed to prop up a decaying institution. But let me start by saying that in comparison to the unicorn, the stakes are far greater for Christianity. In other words, not a whole lot is at stake really if unicorns are a myth. I mean, the regime in North Korea, they would look silly, but I mean, unicorns aren't really central to North Korean thought and worldview. But the historical resurrection of Jesus, on the other hand, the, 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 the resurrection of Jesus is absolutely central to Christianity. If it didn't happen, then Jesus was a fraud and you should have slept in this morning. So this is absolutely critical for us to get straight, right? Can you trust the resurrection? Now, go back to the unicorns for a second, and then I promise I'll drop the unicorns. But think about it. Why don't you trust the claims of, of, uh, of the North Korean news agency, right? Because over and over again, the claims that they've made have proven to be false, right? Cr proven to have no basis whatsoever, been proven over and over again that the things that they say you can't really trust. But, but did you know that Christianity probably would have had some of the same credibility issues when people walked around started claiming that Jesus had risen from the dead, right? You could have had the same trouble at the time about the reports, about whether they could be trusted. All right, look at what we just read, right? This is really important. Who is at the center of the story we just read in Luke chapter 24, verses 1 to 12? Who are the main characters that Luke follows starting at verse 1? This is a group of women, right? He even names some of them in verse 10. The other gospel writers give us some of the other names. Now you say, why is that a problem? Seems like Luke is giving us an eyewitness account. Yes, he is. You'd expect him to, to, to name names. This is actually, this is in the ancient world, the, the high level of credibility was given to eyewitness accounts. And these names of people who had witnessed something were often written down in the documents. It was kind of how they cited their sources. It was like the footnotes. Hey, you want to talk about it? Like, go talk to them. Go, go, go check it out. Luke was an historian. He was writing history. And so you would expect him to name names of the eyewitnesses. What you wouldn't expect Luke to do is to be citing women as eyewitnesses. Women. If Luke were making this up, if he just kind of said, you know what, let me think about the best way to get people to believe that there actually was a resurrection, right? If he were just making it up, then this was a very poor choice on his part. A mistake in crafting the story. Why? Because women would have had no credibility in the ancient world. Their testimony didn't count in a court of law. Right? Because, because, because they, 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 they didn't think that they could believe them. The, the first century Greek philosopher, um, Celsus, brushed aside the truth of the resurrection in his writings. He said, because, quote, the chief witness is an hysterical female, quote, talking about Mary Magdalene specifically. So why would Luke write them in as the main characters of his story? He had nothing to gain from making it up this way, unless it were true, unless it actually did happen that way. It's the only reason why he would have chosen to write down that women were the first eyewitnesses and the ones to, to bear witness to the others that the resurrection had happened. So let's do a little examination. Let's look at it through the eyes of these women, right? I want, I want to look at, at, at three things. I want to look first at what the women expected, 
at what the women found and what the women did. What the women expected, what the women found, and what the women did. Now, first, what the women expected. This is verse 1. First day of the week, that's Sunday, the women got up and they went to the tomb. Now, they did not go expecting a living body. They were bringing spices and ointments, right, that they had prepared. These spices and ointments were not like lotions for a living body. You know, when you got dry skin, you kind of put on some lotion, right? That's, that's for a living body. These are spices and ointments that are intended for burial. They didn't get to do them when Jesus had first died because night had come and the Sabbath was approaching. And it said that they were observing the Sabbath on Saturday. So now they're coming to, to take care of it. But they don't go expecting a live body. They don't think as they go that this is the day that Jesus was going to rise. Right? The angel will remind them in a minute that they should have expected it, but they didn't. They weren't waiting for Sunday because they thought Jesus was going to rise from the dead. They were waiting for Sunday because the day before was the Sabbath, and it says in verse 23 that they rested according to the commandment. Now, I know I've said this before at different times and stuff, but we tend to think that people in the ancient world are stupid, that they didn't really, you know, like they were just mistaken. He wasn't really dead. They probably got it mixed up. You know, silly, superstitious people at the time, they were really dumb back then, right? Now, they might not have had our technology, but just think about this for a second. If you were transported back to the ancient world 2,000 years ago, you would probably be dead in two days. Why? Because they were significantly smarter than you are about lots of things, right? Because you'd be like, I have not seen a grocery store around me anywhere, right? I'm trying to get Uber Eats here, but like the Wi-Fi is awful, you'd be dead, right? They weren't stupid. And by the way, they knew what dead was, right? They had seen Jesus taken down from the cross. They knew he was dead. Joseph of Arimathea didn't take the body to his house expecting him to rise, right? He didn't take him to his house because, well, he'll be up in a day or so. No, he took him to his tomb because he was dead. And we need to start here because the resurrection is meaningless if Jesus isn't dead to begin with. It's like that classic line from the first page of um, a Dickens' A Christmas Carol, right? Dickens is talking about uh, Ebenezer Scrooge's dead partner, Jacob Marley, and he says, there must be no doubt that Marley was dead. This must be distinctly understood or nothing wonderful can come of the story I'm going to relate, right? Marley had to be dead in order for the story to make sense, right? That line could be applied perfectly to the account right here. Jesus was dead. This must be distinctly understood, or nothing wonderful can come of the story I am going to relate. Right? That's what the women expected. Right? And we have to acknowledge the reality of that. I mean, one can be critical of the, of the women and the other disciples for not believing Jesus when he said that he was going to rise again from the dead. He did say that to them on multiple occasions, probably. Luke records it in Luke chapter 9. But the plain truth is they didn't. Right? It may be a bit embarrassing that they didn't. It may paint them in a bad light, but Luke doesn't care about whether they're in a bad light or not because he's not writing this down so that he can make the disciples look smart. Right? If he was doing that, he would have had them say, ah, yes, remember back in chapter 9, he told us they would have been ready, but they're not. They don't. They forget. He's writing it down because this is an accurate statement of what actually happened. Now, it should also give us a degree of sympathy for these women. They were sad. Jesus was dead. They were grieving. Things seemed hopeless. If you were here on Friday, we talked about how they weren't hopeless, but, there was, but, but, but it seemed that way. It certainly would have seemed that to the women on Easter morning it was hopeless because they're going to the tomb expecting the dead body of their beloved teacher. Is that what you expect this morning from the world? 
Do you kind of come into the world, I mean, maybe kind of like with, you know, you're trying to find little gleams of light here and there, but are you really kind of coming the same way, expecting nothing really from, but, but suffering from the world, looking around and kind of saying like, this is really, this is really the, best we can, the best we can get? Are you coming to the world really kind of looking at the death and the sorrow and the struggle? That's what the women were doing. That's where their focus was. Now, point number two, what they find? Because they came expecting a dead body, but what did they find? Go back to verse 2. It says they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. See, this is how ancient burial worked. Like we think of it today as like, you know, you sort of dig up from the ground or whatever. But ancient burial, particularly for well-off folks like Joseph of Arimathea, remember it was his tomb that Jesus was buried in, what they would do is they would cut out of rock uh, like a, you know, an entrance or like a little space. And then they would place the body in there and they would roll a big stone in in front of it to, to seal it. And Mark's account tells us that the women were actually wondering as they were going, hey, who's going to move the stone? And thought that part through, right? And they get there, and it's not a problem because the stone has been rolled away. That's what they found. They found that the stone had been rolled away. And right along with that, what didn't they find that they were expecting to find? Well, verse 3, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And they're perplexed. That's a great word, perplexed. Right? They didn't know what to make of the situation. But while they were perplexed about this, it says, Behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. Now, these are angels. Angels don't always assume human form. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But you know they're angels because of this dazzling apparel. Right? That's what it's trying to get across to you. Luke's not saying that they were, these were two well-dressed dudes with, you know, on Easter Sunday morning. You know getting dressed up for the day. Now, that's not what dazzling apparel is talking about. These are angelic beings. And the angels knew what the women were looking for. They were looking for a body, the body of Jesus, the dead body of Jesus. And they say to the women, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Now, usually we jump right to the he is risen part. He's risen. That's what we do. We do with the call to worship, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of cool. Collectively, he's risen. He's risen indeed. We jump right to that kind of statement. But slow down for a second. And I want you to think about the question that the angels asked the women. This is a profound question. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Because this question is a challenge to the religious impulse of every human being. In other words, you don't have to live very long to know or to figure out that there's a problem with the world. Suffering, pain, death, right? We're all looking for some sort of answer to that. We live in the midst of a graveyard, essentially, right? If you, if you don't die young yourself, right, and you live to an old age, well, then it means you're going to watch lots of other people that you know die. One way or another, we're living among it. We're living in, a, in the midst of death. And since the beginning of time, Humanity has been seeking the key to the living. We've been looking for the living. We're looking for a solution to the the problem, an answer to the question, a hope that will soothe us in the midst of that despair. But where do we look for it? We look for it among the dead, among things that will not really be able to help us. We look for it in things like uh, in education, in beauty, in entertainment. Drugs or alcohol, hard work, religious observance even, right? Sexual expression, exercise, pornography, the next vacation, the approval of others, the extra bowl of ice cream, philosophical exploration. 
Now, some of those things are not objectively bad things. Some of them are good things. Some of them are bad. Some of them are good. But each of them, if that's where we're looking for the suffering or for the solution to the suffering in the world, each of them, if that's what we're looking to, to satisfy us and fill us with a sense of meaning and purpose and transcendent hope, to give us a joy that rises above our circumstances, each of them will fail because you're looking for the right thing, hope, peace, and joy. You're looking for the living, but you're looking for the living in the wrong place. You're looking for the living among the dead. That's what the angels are saying to the women. You're looking for Jesus. You got the right thing, but you're looking in the wrong place. You're searching for him among the tombs, and you will not find him here. Why not? Because he's alive. And it's happened just like Jesus said it was going to happen. They tell, the, they tell the women, remember how Jesus told you that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Right? Go back and look at chapter 9, verse 22, and you can see it. They should have known, but they forgot. Us too. We do the same thing. Are you looking for Jesus? In other words, you've heard something about Jesus before, but for whatever reason, you're still not certain that you've that you found him. You're still looking for the living, for the hope and the joy that transcends your circumstances. Maybe that's why you're here this morning. I hope so. It's a good thing to be looking for the living, but don't look for him among the dead. I mean, don't think that checking the box on, on church attendance or getting an emotional shot on a Sunday morning is going to make you alive. Only Jesus will do that, right? You need to find Jesus, and you need to put your faith and your trust in him, and you need to look elsewhere if you're looking for him among the tombs of your performance or your self-pleasure because those things are among the dead and Jesus isn't there, he's alive. Now, if you've been a Christian for a long time, right, you kind of say, well, that's not me. I don't, I'm not looking for him among the, among the dead, right? You've heard it before, you believe it, I won't challenge that. But who among us can say that this truth of the resurrection has really sunk in all the way? Because mature Christians, be honest, right? I mean, as I went through that list of the dead things of the world, things that actually won't give us life. As I went through those lists, how many times do you find yourself searching for satisfaction in those things, the dead things of the world? Uh, last Easter, a columnist in the, in the New York Times published an interview in the New York Times with a pastor from, from our denomination, Tim Keller, retired pastor who spent his life teaching about Jesus and, and writing books about the resurrection and preaching sermons about the resurrection. Well, in 2020, he was diagnosed with, with pancreatic cancer, which is terminal in virtually every case. Now, he's done remarkably well with treatment. He's still, he's still alive. But he said in this interview last year that all, this, all the years he's been writing and teaching about Easter, and he's, I mean, he's a mature Christian. He understands. He didn't disbelieve any of this about Jesus. But he said, you know, now... The resurrection seems to mean a lot more. The columnist in the New York Times asked him, so where do you find hope? And he said, I find it in the resurrection. He said, if the resurrection of Jesus Christ really happened, then ultimately God is going to put everything right. Suffering is going to go away. Evil is going to go away. Death is going to go away. Aging is going to go away. Pancreatic cancer is going to go away. And he says he knew this before, right? He believed it before. But now it's just been pushed down into his own experience, right? None of us have reached the point where we have fully understood and comprehended and applied the hope of the resurrection. He, he says, I do think that the great thing about cancer, imagine anyone saying something like that, 
The great thing about cancer is that Easter does mean a whole lot more because I look at Easter and I say, because of this, I can face anything. In the past, he says, I thought of Easter as a a kind of optimistic, upbeat way of thinking about life. And now I see that Easter is a universal solvent. You know what a solvent is? Dissolves things. He says it's a universal solvent. It eats through any fear, any anger, any despair. I see Easter as more powerful than ever. That's what the women found. They hadn't fully pushed it down, but they found something that would be more powerful than anything they could have possibly been looking for. They went looking for a body. That's point number one. That's what the women expected. What they found was a universal solvent that can dissolve and melt away any fear or anxiety or worry. They found a message of hope about a Jesus who was alive. That's point number two. Now, what did they do? Point three, right? They shared what they saw, right? And in doing so, they inspired a a leader who had been in hiding. Look at verse nine. Returning from the tomb, they told told all these things to the 11 and to all the rest, right? What did they do? They didn't devise a strategy, they didn't develop talking points in a media campaign, right? Imagine if it were me. This is what I would have done. All right. It's not going to sound believable, so this is what we need to do. All right? We're going to need to, we're going to, need to be very careful about how we word the press release here. And there's going to be a lot of questions, so we should develop one of those FAQs, frequently asked questions, so we make sure we're all on the same page about how we're going to answer these, these questions. And we're going to, Is that what they did? No. They just went and they told what they saw, told what they had heard. Right, so we say, well, of course, they, of course they went and told them. It makes sense. We read the story, right? That's, right? Does that make sense? I mean, that's the correct answer. But is that what we do? Right? Is that what we do with the greatest news we could ever hear? The news that the death, the death has been defeated, that suffering is temporary, that real hope is possible, right? Here's a test just to kind of think to yourself, right? If in the past week you ate at a really outstanding restaurant, I mean a terrific meal, fantastic food, Right? You found this new place. Right? Or, let's say in the, in, the, in the past week, you discovered an amazing new TV show. Right? I mean, this is, just, this is just a great show. Right? Or, let's say a week or so ago, you got to attend the NCAA basketball finals. Right? You were there in person, courtside. Right? Or, right, if, you, if you're not into basketball, right? say, think about it, you finally got to go to that Broadway show or that concert that you have been waiting for, and you did that this past week, right? I bet that if any of those things had happened to you in this last week, you would, you would find a way, some way, to work it into the casual conversations that you were having with people this weekend. It would just come out. It would have to. Now, let me push it a little bit closer to what we're talking about here in the gravity of this situation. What if you had pancreatic cancer? And on Wednesday, you learned that a new miracle drug had been approved with a 100% cure rate. And your doctor had gotten the first shipment of this drug. And you got your shot on Thursday. And they did a scan on Friday. And the cancer's gone. Gone. Think you would have told someone by now? In the 1980s, Mark Zook went as a missionary to the jungles of Papua New Guinea in in South Pacific. And with his team, they spent years learning the language of the Mok people there. And they began to tell the people the story of God and how God saves people. And they started with, with, with the Old Testament and how God dealt and interacted with the people of Israel. And for months, the people would come out and, and listen to the stories about this God. Now, culturally, the Mok people are pretty reserved people. They're emotionally kind of restrained. 
It wasn't normal for them to get all emotional. But when Mark told them the story about the arrest of Jesus, they began to get agitated. They were kind of hoping that he, he, would, he, would, uh, he would escape. He didn't, of course, and, 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 then he, and then he was executed and he died. And he said they were, they were openly distraught. They were disturbed. And then he told them the story about Jesus being raised from the dead, about how the resurrection meant that they were also free from the penalty of sin. And he said something started to happen. These people, these emotionally reserved people began standing up and saying, Itau, Itau, which means it's true, it's good. And they started to just like, they, they started to stand up and celebrate. He said, it's like your team won on a buzzer beater at home in the last seconds of the game and all the fans rushed the court. He said, that's what it was like. And when things calmed down, Mark said, he said, when, all right, when will you go to the other villages and tribes to tell this good news? And he said it started with one man who raised his hand and said, I'll go. And soon there were dozens of missionaries preparing to go to neighboring tribes. Now, they were trained. They did some training with them. But they didn't wait until they had all, you know, had their seminary degree. They didn't wait until they had all their theological questions and stuff all worked out. They didn't do that any more than you would have waited to get a degree in molecular biology or, or clinical oncology to tell someone that you had been cured of your cancer. The Moke people just knew that they had found what they had been looking for, what they had been looking for among the dead. They had found the living, and they couldn't wait to tell someone else about it. The first thing the women did was tell the people who were closest to them. Now, they didn't listen. <laughs> they didn't. Look at verse 11, right? These words seemed to them as an idle tale. This is the, the, the apostles, the disciples, as they heard it. It, heard, it seemed to them as an idle tale, an idle tale. It's the only time that Greek word is used in the New Testament. It means, it means a story of no value, value right? Silly nonsense. Hysterical women. Right? That's, what they were, that's what they were thinking. That's what they thought. Except maybe for Peter. Peter, it seems, listened at least enough to go check it out. Now, maybe it was because Peter, who had been the one who had been having the conversation with Jesus back in Luke chapter 9. Now, Jesus was speaking to all the disciples when he talked about his resurrection, but it was just after Peter had made the confession that Jesus was the Christ, that he was the Messiah. That's when Jesus said, yeah, this Messiah that we're talking about, he's going to suffer, he's going to die, and then on the third day he's going to rise. And maybe it triggered in Peter, maybe, just maybe, I wonder, I wonder if it could be. Now, maybe it was also because Peter's last encounter with Jesus wasn't all that great. Remember, Peter had denied knowing Jesus three times. Yeah. Ever encounter someone whose last words to a loved one had been like a sudden argument before their death? Or a conflict that had been left unresolved? Things that they wish they had been able to say? A conversation that they wish they had been able to have? Right? It's really painful. And if you had found out that you had another shot, you'd probably go check it out, right? Another shot to have that conversation. You thought that maybe it was over, but no, as it turns out, you still have an opportunity, right? You would go. Whatever the reason was for Peter, that's what he did. He went. And what did he find? Verse 12, he goes into the tomb and he finds the same thing the women did. Body's gone. Jesus isn't there. And it says that he went home marveling at what had happened. Now, over the next month or so, I hope you'll come back because we're going to continue reading the story through the end of Luke and even into the first couple chapters of the book of Acts, which is the sequel to the Gospel of Luke. And we'll see that this event, right, that caused Peter to marvel, 
the resurrection of Jesus, is what transformed Peter from an impetuous and a reckless coward into the bold leader at the very forefront of the early church. Right? Will the resurrection do that for you? Will it transform you into a bold proclaimer of a living hope? This is a really big deal. This is what the resurrection is. It's not a metaphor for a new life. It's not, it's not baby chicks and Easter flowers. Right? It's an historical event that changes the course of human history and transforms your life. If you will find the living among the dead. If you will listen to the women. Listen like Peter did. And then go run and find out for yourself. Because if it's true, you've found the living of what you've been looking for. And then you can't be silent. William Sangster was a well-known minister in Britain. His church was not far from Westminster Abbey in the early, uh, the early mid-20th century. He actually started as a pastor at this church in 1939, and the basement of the church was used as a, an air raid shelter during the London Blitz of 1940. Remember Britain's darkest hour? After the war, he helped lead a spiritual renewal movement in the Methodist church founded on the hope of the resurrection and the belief in the Bible as the true Word of God. But in 1958, he was diagnosed with an incurable disease that caused his muscles to slowly lose their ability to function. And over the course of the next two and a half years, he experienced the gradual paralysis of his muscles, which left him ultimately with no voice and only able to move just a couple of his fingers. Now, he could write with those fingers, but as time went on, it became harder and harder to read what he was what he was writing. But on Easter morning, just a few weeks before he died, he managed to write, how terrible to wake up on Easter and have no voice to shout, he is risen. But far worse, he said, to have a voice and not want to shout it. That's what we're doing here today, right? If you're looking for the answer to suffering and to death, do not look for those things among the dead, among the dead things of this world. Look for them among the living. Church, know your role and do your job. You have a voice. Shout together. While we have a voice, celebrate and proclaim the eternal life that is found only in the risen Jesus. Right? Soar we now where Christ has led following our exalted head, made like him, like him we rise. Ours the cross, the grave, and the skies. Let's pray. Father, you have done this. You have done this. You have raised Jesus Christ from the dead as the down payment of our ultimate resurrection. Lord, allow us to see that, to put our faith in that, to trust in that, to follow this Jesus wherever He might lead, knowing that there is no ultimate despair in this world. There is no suffering for those who are following Christ that will not ultimately be redeemed. There is no death that will defeat us because death was defeated on the cross and demonstrated with clarity in the resurrection of Jesus. So touch each of our hearts wherever we are this morning and transform us into the bold disciples like Peter, proclaiming the work of Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.